Well, good morning, everyone. Hope you're all doing well. It's, uh, it's awesome to be here. Brad and I actually go back to our college days, as you saw in the bulletin, uh, which I just read as I got here. So you'll know my allegiance to hockey already. So I've known some familiar faces here. Uh, I talked to Ernie back there. And Ernie was actually, because um, North Langley was the first church to hire me. Um, don't know why still, but thankful. Um, and actually, Ernie was one of the very first people in the whole church that talked to me. And uh, so I appreciate that. And I would like to take credit for him and Robin actually getting together and getting married. So that's my claim to fame there. But I met Pete for the first time today. And uh, Pete and I are already best friends because of his shirt that he's wearing. So if you haven't seen it, you will uh, have to take a look at that. Go Flames, go. It's awesome. So also want to say thank you to worship team too. This was, it was so good to lead us in worship. Girls, you sound better than I ever will, singing, and appreciate that. And is it Ryan? Where's, where's Ryan? You have more rhythm than I will ever have in my lifetime as well. I was watching up here with this, and it was so good. So thank you for leading us in that. It was great, you guys. Loved it. Um, well, I want to just take a moment and uh, pray, and then we will um, get into God's Word this morning in Second Samuel. It's an honor to be here with you guys. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for today. Lord, we know that uh, some people may call them these lazy summer days where we have, don't have much of an agenda in life, and it's a time to refocus and rejuvenate ourselves for the busy schedules that we lead. Um, God, and that's true for maybe um, some or many here today. And we just thank you for this time, for these opportunities that we have to, to do more family things and get away and for seasons. Um, and Lord, we also understand too that uh, for some people, it's not just a lazy summer day, that there is deep trials or deep, deep desert roads that they're walking in right now. Um, and so, God, we want to pray that you would show yourself in a new way to all of us today, wherever we are at, that you would remind us that you are present, that you are leading us, and you have your best interest in store for us. And so we gather today, Lord, as uh, this kingdom expression here in Willoughby, and we are thankful for it, and we just pray that you would continue to do great things here. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to start out with a couple stories. Uh, first of all, uh, my wife is from a small town up north called Houston. Has anyone heard of Houston, B.C.? Yes. There, wow, there's quite a few of you. When I met her, I was like, Houston, Texas? I, I'm an Albertan. I don't know this. So, but Houston, B.C. is a town of 4,000 people, and we went up there. Uh, we go up there pretty well every year to visit her family. So two years ago, as we were going up, it was myself and my then six-year-old son two years ago, and we were quadding. Quadding is huge for my, my city slicker kids, and so we were up there, and we were blazing the trails. And so my son's on there, and I, I was pretty well full throttle on this thing as fast as I could go without actually hitting a tree, and he's just going faster, Daddy, faster, 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 and we were out for about 20, 30 minutes winding around all these trails, and suddenly, as we're going fast, and he wants to go faster, suddenly we reached this clearing, and as I went to gear down, the whole thing just powered down. And I'm thinking to myself, this is not good. We had an agenda to go out further and faster and to do all this stuff, and now we're stopped in the middle of nowhere, and the silence was deafening. And especially because we're in the middle of bear country. In fact, the next day I went out with my daughter, and this bear actually ran across our path. I was like, oh, that's scary. And she's like, do that again, Dad. I'm like, no thanks. We're not going to do that again. But so we're in bear country, and it's just kind of like, we're sitting ducks out here. So we had to, we had to walk all the way back to the cabin, um, I'm talking loud to my son Carter the whole time and he's like, Dad, why are you talking so loud? I'm right here. I'm like, oh, no reason, no reason, just talking around. And I was just nervous because I've been in this situation before. So anyway, 
uh, Michelle's stepdad comes out. He found out that he said, you're about three miles out. And uh, he came out, and I realized I had stalled it, and it wasn't fully in gear to restart it. <laughs> How awkward is that? So he's like, oh, you just got to put it in gear, and it starts. I'm like, oh, this is so awkward. Trying to impress him. But anyway, um, so what we had started out for the day suddenly became a very different day by the end of it. I want to switch gears, so to speak. Um, I want to go back nine years ago uh, to a movie that came out by Pixar called Cars. How many of you have seen Cars? You've seen it? So you know this guy who you see on the screen? What's his name? Lightning McQueen. Speed. I am speed. We have a little toy Lightning McQueen car that actually races in our house and our dog freaks out every time it goes by. Um, But in the beginning of Cars 1, can you believe already people who are a little bit older. Um, Nine years ago, that one came out already. Nine years ago. It's crazy. But in the beginning of Cars 1, there's this race, and Lightning McQueen, along with two other people, um, race around, and it becomes a dead heat, right? It's it's all three finishers in a dead race. And so they say, we have to have a one-day race off in California to determine who wins. And so Lightning McQueen, thinking he's the fastest car in the whole world, and he can do it alone, says, I'm going to be the first one to California so that I can get some practice and get ready for all of this. Well, he gets in his truck, and Mac is the truck, and along their way to California, something happens. As Lady McQueen has an agenda to go out, suddenly Mac starts getting tired. And Mac's like, you know what, Lightning, let's, let's pull over for the night. And Lightning McQueen's like, we will have none of that. I am a Mach 4 kind of guy, and we are heading to California, so stay awake and let's go. Well, one thing leads to another. These cars come up and kind of like play around with Mac. He hits the bumpers on the side of the road, and all of a sudden the back of the truck accidentally opens up, and Lightning McQueen wakes up to find himself not in California, but eventually in this old town, out-of-the-way town, called Radiator Springs. And the whole movie is based on that. But it's that pivotal point that changes because Lightning McQueen's agenda is changed the rest of the movie. So how do I tie these two in together? Sometimes in our life, you know, we have set our agenda and we go forward in a direction for that. But what happens? What happens when our agenda in life gets changed? And I want to kind of center our thoughts around this as we look into 2 Samuel today. But I want to think about this question for us today. What happens when our agenda in life gets changed? For me, I had planned on going out and quadding for hours with my son as Hopefully the gas would, you know, last us. But suddenly I found this thing stalled, walking back three miles to a cabin. It wasn't what I had planned. For Lightning McQueen, he thought he'd be in California and get lots of practice in. And he's in this old rundown town called Radiator Springs. His agenda got changed as well. For all of us, I think maybe we can think back. Maybe it's this week or last year or some season in our life when we've had an agenda that we move along and it gets changed on us. How do we react? Well, whether you are a regular part of this church community that you call Jericho Ridge Home, um, and I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. I do know some familiar faces, but uh, many that I don't. Whether that's you, or maybe you're just here because it's a summer day and you're visiting from out of town and you have no church connection. You're not even sure about your faith in God, but you've come with somebody. We want to say that you're welcome here. And I believe actually this whole agenda, or sorry, this, uh, this whole topic today on agenda talks to all of us as well. For example, what if we are going all out in work and we see a possible promotion down the line and so we're working harder and longer than we ever have, hoping to get that only to find that someone else got that promotion? What about when we uh, like a guy or girl so much, maybe high school, college days, and you think, you know what, this is, 
this is, has to be God's agenda because this person is beautiful and awesome and smart and way more smarter intellectual than I am. But it's not happening. And in fact, they started dating or married someone else. Why? Maybe you're here and uh, you know what? If, if you're a child, life seems to be going great. School's awesome. You've got your friends and you've got maybe youth group or wherever you go, you've got your clubs. And all of a sudden you come home one day and mom and dad sit you down and say, you know what? Mom or dad, one of us got transferred to a whole nother city. This happened to my 10-year-old daughter one day when her best friend came and said, we're moving actually to Anaheim, California, because my dad got transferred from work. And so he went there. Can you imagine for my daughter what that felt like? Everything seems to be going fine. Or for her best friend, that agendas get changed. What about when life seems to be going well, when all of a sudden the rug gets pulled out from under you through a sudden broken relationship? Maybe a best friend, like I said, moves away. Maybe a child of yours goes wayward and you're not sure where that came from. Or maybe a spouse tells you that they need some time apart from you or that in fact things are done. What do we do? Well, as we, uh, as we said uh, in, in, the, in the bulletin today, we're going to be looking into 2 Samuel. And I want to just kind of talk about some of these ideas about how we talk about things and react when our agenda in life gets changed. And so, if you have your Bible, um, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you don't, that's okay, because all of the verses will be on the screen behind, screens behind me as well. So up until this point, um, I know that you've been into 2 Samuel a little bit, but up until this point, I think the underlying theme of this whole chapter and this whole book so far is activity. There's been a ton of things going on, and it's almost like, yeah, like I said, Mach 4 with life, this chapter seems to be like, man, there's so many things going on. It happens, it's happening at Mach 4 speed. So we've got international wars taking place. We've got civil wars taking place. We've got sabotage and internal fighting. We've got people vying to be king of Israel, this nation that God loves and leads. But now, at the beginning of chapter 7, what we see is this man, this powerful man by the name of David, who becomes king over all of Israel and brings Israel together. And he takes up residence in Jerusalem. And so this king has now been anointed and, and called by everybody. Yep, we're voted in as king. And the headquarters, the capital city is going to be Jerusalem. And we want to just set you there. And so David goes there. Now David, understand this. David was a doer. I don't know how many of you are doers, but I think our life is split between the doers and the relaxers. You know, those people who can relax and chill until noon and have no problem about that. And then there are those who do. And if you do nothing by noon, you feel incredibly guilty that you haven't done at least 13 things off your list. I don't know if you're that or if your spouse is that and causes you not to be a relaxer but a doer. But I think our life is set up by that. David was a doer. David was a guy who says, you know what, we can enjoy lemonade on a hot summer day in one hand as long as we've got a shovel in the other. He always was doing something and he was a very busy guy. And so suddenly we're in chapter 7 here of 2 Samuel. Life is going fine and dandy for him and full of activity. But now we're sitting in Samuel, 2 Samuel 7, we go from a focus of outside Israel's walls and everything going on to some more of internal affairs and things take a sudden turn. So I want to look at chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. It says this, After the king, who is David, was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, he says, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. I'm here in my own home 
and the ark of God remains in a tent. Now, kids, if I'm, or anyone, for, for hearing, you hear the word ark, what do you kind of think of right away? What, another story about an ark, right? Noah. Yeah, Noah's ark. And Noah's ark, was it big or small? It was big. It was really, really, really big. This actually isn't Noah's ark, but it is another ark. It's something that, an ark was basically something that contained something in it. And so what they're talking about here is this term ark of God. And I want to just stop there for just a second because it's really important. This ark of God is given other names in the Bible, like ark of the covenant um, and other things. But basically what it was is that God was with his people. God was with his people. We're told all the way back in the second book of the Bible, Exodus, Exodus chapter 25, God says this to his people. He says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the patterns I will show you. So in other words, God was with his people, but he asked them to build him a home, basically. And his home was basically a box that God would come and dwell with his people. And from that, everywhere the nation of Israel went, this ark of God would go with them. And because the, the nation of Israel was very transient, they would go around and camp and camp and for years and they would move around all the time, the ark of God was transient as well. So in other words, they never had a permanent place to call home. And so now in 2 Samuel, it gives us a bit of context that David, who loves God with his whole heart, says, you know, wait a minute. Like I said, I've got a big house. In fact, I've got part of a mansion and it's beautiful cedars. Like it's awesome. But at the same time, doesn't it seem a little unfair that I have this and God still dwells in this little place? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to build him a big home because God deserves it. And so Nathan, who is essentially his personal pastor, can you imagine having your own personal pastor everywhere you went in life? That'd be kind of cool. Um, maybe cool because I'm a pastor. But Second uh, Samuel 7.3 says this. So David tells this to Nathan. And this is Nathan's response. Nathan replied to the king, who is David, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. Why? For the Lord is with you. So Nathan's looking in the past. He's saying, you know what? For years I've seen this now. David, wherever you've gone, God's hand has been upon you. Whatever your agenda has been, God has matched that and met you there. And so in this instant, you know what? I'm not even going to just confer with God here. Because what you're saying sounds good, and it sounds reasonable, and it sounds like God would be honored through it. Therefore, here's the building permit. Go nuts. David's ambition seems good, so why wouldn't God bless it? Well, in this whole text today, if there's two big turns, two pivotal points, I guess I would say, that kind of hinge on this whole story, this is turn number one. First of all, David has an agenda, but we're going to see in a moment that it gets changed. In other words, David has his own purpose. He's got his own things going on and good things, I will say. He's not looking out to rob and steal and all that kind of stuff. His intentions are good, but he has an agenda. But God's going to come along here and he's going to see it changed. In this particular instance, God is the one who changes it. Let's read in 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to, I don't want to pick and choose. Normally I don't like doing that, but this is a long discourse, but I want to just read to you some of these verses from here of what God tells Nathan to tell David. 2 Samuel 7, starting at verse 5. This is what God tells Nathan. He says, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. 
Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. In verse 8, he says, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. In other words, when David was very young, he was a shepherd over sheep. And he's reminding him, tell him that I took him from there to watching sheep, to actually watching this entire nation and watching over it. I brought him a lot of, (laughs) a huge place. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And now, David, I will make your name great. He's telling Nathan, tell him this. I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. I will also give you the rest, I'll give you rest from your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over, David, and and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Essentially, God tells Nathan, he says, tell David, I have done great things through you, and I will make your name great, David, even greater than it is right now. But in this situation, David, you've got your own agenda, but I have another one. You want to go one way, but I want to go another. David, you will not be the one to build the temple. Now, if you were David, and your personal pastor came and told you this, first of all, I wonder what Nathan would have thought. I've got to go tell the king no. All he's ever known in life is yes. I'm a little bit nervous probably. But as the news, if you were David being, hearing that news, how would you handle it? I mean, David's king, after all, over all of Israel. Could he not say, God, what do you mean? Why would you say no? After all, God, I am doing this for you. My motivation is for you. God, don't I deserve to be the one to do this after all of the victories that have been won? God, I can show everyone in the land how great you are by building this permanent home for you, and it will be like none other. God, I, 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 God, my agenda, God, the way I see it is, and God stops him and says, you know what, David? This is the issue. It has been your agenda at this juncture, but it is not mine. And let's remind ourselves here, who is God and who is not? So David is now faced with a changing agenda. Essentially, David or Nathan revokes the building permit and says, this is not what God will have for you. It doesn't tell us in here, David went away and thought about this for a while, or David went on a retreat and, you know, thought about these words. It just tells us that David responded. I don't know how much time that was. I don't know what went through his heart and through his mind, but I'm sure he wondered to himself, will I accept this? Because it's not just automatic that God tells a king something and people do it. People have often in Israel's history actually been doing something other than what God told them. And we're told they did evil in the sight of God. So what will David do here? He's not a robot. He's human with the ability to make decisions and act on them. Well, if God changing David's agenda was turn one, these next verses here are without a doubt turn number two. 
How would David respond? Let us see together. 2 Samuel 7, 18, it tells us this. Does he yell at God? Does he shout? Does he do whatever? But he says this. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. I wanted to stop there for just a moment before we read the rest of that. So the response is that David went in and sat. He sat. It's kind of like, and? Uh, what else goes on? Before we read the rest of it, I just want to sit in that for a second. I don't mean that to be a pun, but uh, it worked out really well, actually. Um, no, but I wanted to say, think about that for a minute. The man who sits, or sorry, the man who moves, much like Lightning McQueen at Mach 4 in life, David, who has his own agenda, who does not bow before anyone because he sits on a royal throne, tells us that he now comes in and sits before God. A king doesn't sit before anyone, but David here sits before God. I think that is incredibly important, the posture that David takes right away. Because a king never bows before anyone, never sits before anyone, but he comes in and sits before God. This is a visual showing that David accepts that God is God and that he is not. And so we move on. Verse 19 says, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if there were, this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human? He goes on, verses 25 to 28. He says, And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. God, do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then the people will say, The Lord God Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. You see, earlier on, God tells David, as I read in there earlier, it says, David, I'm going to make your name great. Don't worry about that. I will make your name great. But in this, David responds to God. And he says, God, you've told me you'll make my name great, but essentially my heart and my soul desire is that your name will be made great. Let your agenda, God, be first. Even though I've got one, I want to submit to what your agenda is in life. And right after this, this whole discourse, we see in verse 8, or sorry, chapter 8, verse 1. It says, In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took um, Metheg Anma from the control of the Philistines. And then at the end of the chapter, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. So in other words, you've got this guy just moving at the speed of sound with everything. He sits before God has this incredible transformative experience and then boom he's back on to you know victories and activity once again but understanding through all of it that God's agenda is first and not our own in looking at this you know it it, it seems actually really nice in a, in, a, in a package to say you know we need to accept God's agenda Wherever we're going with our agenda, we need to understand and accept God's agenda. My issue in struggling with this a little bit is that it's a powerful passage, but to be honest, 
it's hard to match that up sometimes with our real life. In a sense, doesn't David's response actually seem too simplistic? Doesn't David just seem to be far too positive in this situation? Do we respond this way? Perhaps it's, it's in an example that I mentioned earlier, or it's in something else. Do we actually respond this way? When life and circumstances don't go our way, when our agenda gets changed, do we respond as positive as David? We have four children, uh, and they're between the ages of 10 and almost four now. So needless to say, life is busy. When my wife and I want to have an intelligent conversation, uh, we do it after dinner when the kids are in bed because there's just so much activity, but it's awesome. We love it. But when our 10-year-old, our first one, was born, we just were so excited and everything. It was a very, actually, traumatic birth um, for everyone involved, including me. Um, guys, you know what it's like. It's hard. But, um, but after all of that, um, and my wife did all right, too. She was good. She was there. Um, but through all of that, she's not here so I can say this, and please don't record this for her or tell it's there. But anyway, we were just smitten parents with first, you know, first-time parents of this little girl. She's beautiful and walking around the hallway of the hospital to try to get her to sleep at night. You know, you do whatever you want. And they weren't busy at all. And so they're like, why don't you stay a couple more days and we'll make sure she's feeding well and doing all of this and that. An hour before we were supposed to leave the hospital, after staying there for four days, which is unheard of, um, this was 10 years ago, um, my daughter Reese had a massive seizure. And this was out of the blue. Um, she had not had one before. And, and suddenly we're like, what is going on? Nurse, nurse. And we're calling everyone in. And suddenly they swooped her away. And this team of doctors and nurses were on her immediately. And we're just like going from this state of like beautiful parenthood. This is all wonderful. We're tired, but great and happy. To what is going on with our daughter? And before we know it, within about an hour or so, she's in an ambulance and on her way down to Children's Hospital, having multiple seizures along the way. The doctor's not knowing what's going on, but having every test conceivable under the sun. And we're sitting there going, what is going on? This was not our agenda. And God, I don't believe you caused this agenda, but again, our agenda has been changed. How are we going to react to this? It was hard. Where do we put our trust? Do we put our trust in God only when things are good or also in times we're bad? When we submit ourselves, we sit before God's throne and say, God, we don't understand, but we choose to trust you. And I think that's actually the issue of trust or the issue that is here before David. Will I trust God for his agenda and not mine? Through all of the tests and about six months of medication, um, we weaned her off and the doctors were just so excited. And obviously we were much more excited to see our daughter come to full health. And they weren't sure what was going to happen, but they said, we hope that this is it. And she's never had another seizure since six months old. She's just a... Uh, perfectly beautiful, 10-year-old, fully functional, and we're thankful for that. But I can tell you that grew our faith in ways that we had never expected. But the issue in that and so many other areas that we face today on a lazy summer day in August, will we trust God that he has our best interests in mind at all times, that he walks with us in those valleys, that his interests are above our own, and that we will trust him? Please understand this question. The question is not, do I trust God to make me happy? But rather, do I trust God for my ultimate well-being? And that is hard. And I don't want to put a nice bow on this and say, just bless you and trust God along the way. Because I don't know exactly what you're facing. 
There are other issues that we're facing as a family right now, and it's, it's difficult. We don't just pat ourselves on the back and say, chin up, trust God, and be happy. Because to be honest, that's, that's hard. And I think God wants us to be honest and transparent before him, and we're allowed to cry out to God. We're allowed to be angry to God. We read the Psalms. There's a full gamut of emotions in there. But what I want to do is to give you an encouragement that God is, has our back, that God has our well-being in store for us, is to see that yes, back in Exodus, God dwelt among his people physically in a box. But we would see years and years and generations and generations later that God would come to earth once again. And he wouldn't be confined to a box, but he would rather come as Jesus the Son to dwell among his people again. And not only to encourage and heal and do amazing things in his lifetime, but ultimately to die a brutal death on a cross because of his love for us. And everything kind of comes back to there. And even as Jesus was aware of God's agenda for him, there's a passage in the, in the book of Matthew we see, it's called the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is praying to God right before he's arrested. And he's crying out and saying, God, I know your agenda here, but if there can be any other way this goes down, any other way that we can begin this redemption of, of mankind to us, please let it be. And he says, though, yet not my will, but yours be done. In other words, not my agenda here, God, is most important, God the Father. Yours is. And so Jesus died a brutal death on a cross, but we know that that is not the end of it. That, that three days later, Jesus rose from the dead to begin this redemption of this broken relationship with humankind that we began. And all the way since then, God has been dwelling among his people in the, as the Holy Spirit to be working and redeeming our, our broken world. I don't think we have to look far to see the brokenness in our world or perhaps the brokenness in our lives. But I think it's proof that Jesus coming to earth because God loved us so much that God's agenda was for redemption, was for good, was for trust. And even in our valleys in life, even in the places that we struggle, and saying, God, my agenda is not matching up with yours here, and I don't understand why you're not blessing me, we still know, and I can trust, that because God sent his son to die a brutal death, that we can put our trust in him as well, regardless of what we are going through. We have to know that God has his best interests in mind for us. How do we react when our agenda, or when our agenda get, in life gets changed? Do we shake our fist at God and say, God, how dare you? I deserve better because I'm a good person. Or this person deserves better. Or, or, or. Or do we, as David did, sit down before the throne of the King of Kings who created this world and remind ourselves, God, you are God, and I am not. And maybe you're here this morning, and you have not even begun a relationship with Jesus because you are still saying, it's my agenda in life that rules the day. I dictate where I'll go. I dictate where I'll work. I'll dictate, I'll dictate. And God is on the sidelines saying, when will you allow me in to be center stage in your life? So I want to just take a moment to pray. And then I'll invite, uh, actually at this time, Perry, why don't you come up with, uh, with your wonderful band.
and uh, to close off our time together in worship. Would you close your eyes with me just for a moment as, as we take this moment? Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much the fact that you are God and we are not. God, we thank you for the Bible that we can read about stories uh, from generations and, and generations ago. People like David who were faced with decisions time and time again. And God, I thank you for 2 Samuel 7 that he chose to let your agenda be first in his life and that he trusted you. God, I, I don't know all the details. You do, but, but we are not privy to everything that's going on in every, everybody's life in this room. The brokenness that maybe it's felt or the questions that, that people come up against and face. But God, help us to be renewed and restored in the fact that you are for us. That you love us and that you have your best interest in mind for us. You have shown it through history, and you show it to us today. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.